This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's deal with something that is far more important, and it is education and educating young people and what this year has been like. If we look back, this was kind of the Friday where school went into an elongated March break one year ago, and then everything changed. Students finished out the year in very different ways, all of them very, very remote. Joining us right now is the Director of Education with the London District Catholic School Board, Linda Stout. Linda, how are you? Actually, not too bad. Thanks, Mike. Let's look back. Does it feel like one year has passed since kids were headed out for March break, or does it feel like about six? Uh, I think probably the latter. Um, yeah, who knew um, when you know we encountered this last year at that time? Uh, because the first word was, uh, when we got the word on Thursday evening, that it was going to be a couple of weeks. And then we remained hopeful that, uh, you know, after a couple of weeks, we now move into April, and that uh, we would be back in person. Well, then we thought, perhaps Easter, and then it was the May weekend, and then we pretty well knew that for the remainder of the um for that school year that we weren't coming back in person and our schools were closed. Um, yeah, you couldn't have predicted um, just the degree to which everything had to change in one year. And in doing so, not only change, but change into uncharted territory, things that had never been done, things that we talked about this at the time. If you were going to put something like this together, it would probably take you a couple of years to plan it out you essentially had a couple of weekends and then go. Yes, and I think the um, we got a sense of just how much we learned when the news came to us in December. So we had just uh, been told uh, we were one day on the Christmas break, and now that we wouldn't be returning in January. And literally... Um, the teachers needed that first day back uh, in January to make connections with their students. And then by the next day, we were remote learning. Um, and what would have taken us, you know, weeks uh, in the prior year. So we've learned a lot uh, in terms of remote learning. And there's um, some excellent practices that we're going to take with us, you know, into the next school year. Um, but it wasn't something that, uh, you know, we would have envisioned. We're talking with Linda Stout, who is the Director of Education with the London District Catholic School Board. Linda, what's been the biggest challenge? I think it's the, uh, it's the worry. It's the, it's the health concerns. And so we've been, um, you know, very diligent, and, and our community has been wonderful um, in all of the protocols that are in place. But it's that nagging um uh fear you know that just when you start seeing improvement and we did then now the right the rising concern is of the variant so that right now is what's causing the the greatest uh anxiety and people want um to be back to the normal things like our high schools they're operating um that the kids are in about 50% of the time 
and through in-person, but the in-person learning uh, doesn't have all of the other activities that they're so accustomed to. And I think we're just all hungering for that ability to come together again as a staff, as students, and those all those normal, wonderful activities. So it remains seen ex- exactly where we're going to be uh, in September, but we're just hoping that uh, the numbers right now uh, in the London area are pretty good, and we're hearing the vaccines are coming perhaps even faster. And if everybody who wants to get a vaccine, you know, were able to do so by the summer, then I think there's uh, there's hope, you know, that normalcy st- will start returning. There was a lot of concern among parents, among, you know, you name it. You didn't even have to be a parent when the province unveiled the plan. This is the way that it's going to work. And there were concerns about how close together children would be. There was concern over ventilation in schools. When you look at how things are now, how do you feel about those concerns? We're, our schools are safe. Um, we've, we've done a lot of work, and, and the teachers, um, our support staff, our administrators. And what really has uh, made the difference, one, uh, certainly is the masking. Uh, but the protocols that we have in place that really have the students in cohorts. So they're sort of alone together, that you're seeing the kids in your class um, but you're not interacting with students from another class. So that um, it has changed how we operate, but it also has made our schools safe that um, um, we just uh, hope that we can start relaxing, but it's too early. Uh, in my previous life, I, I ran marathons. It's 42 kilometers, and I think we're about the 30-kilometer mark. And it, we're not at the time right now where we can we can give up, and all of the the wonderful things that have happened. We just have to stick to it. And and next week's going to be hard for people because emotionally, uh, this was going to be our March break, and we will get it, but we're going to get it in April. So we still we still have some tough times ahead, but hopefully, once April comes and May comes, we'll start seeing uh, the improvements. Linda Stout joining us, Director of Education with the London District Catholic School Board. As we look back over this year, and we'll look forward in just a moment, you mentioned March break not happening. April break was kind of set out there, so you're hearing that that is still a go, still as planned? Yes. um, We've adjusted all of our uh, school calendars, so uh, it'll be right after Easter. And so... With Easter, the students will have and the staff will have a couple of four-day weeks there, and then we go into uh, the full week. So if there's one advantage, um, apart from yesterday's weather, but I think the weather in, in April will probably be better than it's going to be next week, so there is hope. All right. Well, here's hoping people don't decide well let's let's travel because it's so nice we've, we've still gotta still gotta maintain what we're doing like you say 30 k's into a 42.2 of a marathon linda one of the other concerns that existed was the way that last year ended obviously not ideal for continuing things like curriculum so maybe kids didn't learn all that they needed to learn and what would that do going forward what have you heard in that sense in terms of kids staying where they need to be in curriculums we had um 
for the secondary students, we had a large uptake of students uh, enrolling in our um, summer school programming. And what we were able to offer last year uh, for the first time is sort of what you would classify as um, as upgrading courses. So if a student felt, you know, I, I didn't really get the mark that I wanted or I didn't really uh, grasp the curriculum to the extent, uh, they could uh, enroll in those courses in the summer. So that that was a support. And going into this year, um, the teachers uh, were aware of that and were really trying to, in their assessment, to identify you know, where those gaps are so that in their teaching they could, uh, they could address those gaps. Uh, by and large, we're looking at the data right now. Uh, the students are progressing well. Um, for some students who are fully remote, um, they're thriving. Uh, they found um, a mode of learning right now that is very suitable to them. So I think one thing that uh, the year has taught us, there's more than one way uh, to do school, and that uh, for some students, the remote and that flexibility, they quite enjoyed. What do you think going forward? Does anything get, I guess, connected to the curriculums going forward? Does anything that you're doing now become something that you would offer if things were far more normal than they have been for the last 12 months going on longer? Oh, for sure. Um, one of the things is we have what we call a, um, a virtual learning environment, and it's there where the teachers post um, the assignments, the work, the videos. Um, that can, whether we return fully in person or partway, um, that now has become just a wonderful platform uh, for sharing and putting the curriculum. So it, we've learned that it's, it's another very powerful tool uh, that we can use. And I don't think we're going to go back uh, to before in the sense that to leave that totally behind. And we won't be able to because I still sense that, you know, come September, uh, we will still have some incidents, you know, likely of COVID in our, um, you know, in our community. And there probably will still be, you know, hopefully a minimum number of cases, but, you know, where a student has to be off and now um, they can be off at home, but still engaged in a classroom. So before they would have not been part of the learning. So we're just, we've learned new ways to just to, to keep connected. Exactly. So snow days are probably a thing of the past or any other day where if you can't get into school, clickety-click, and there you are in the classroom remotely? We haven't, uh, yeah. We didn't want to break it to the students too early, but you're, you're right. There would be no, day, there'd be no reason any longer for a snow day because the, the learning can continue um, Isn't that while, while the teachers are and the students are at home. Anything else stand out to you, Linda, from this past year before we go? I think just uh, a tribute to um, our communities. Uh, we've been through the tough times, and what um, we've shown is that when we come together, um, and we found new ways to look out for each other, and I think we hear it. The students are looking out for each other. The staff is looking out for the students. We've really, um, we know how important it is. And I think that's something that we're just very proud of. 
and we couldn't do it alone. And together, you know what, it hasn't been great, but we've been there for each other. Linda, thank you so much for that, and thanks for the time today. Please keep safe. Okay, you're very welcome. Thank you, Mike. That's Linda Stone, Director of Education with the London District Catholic School Board. On the year that has been, on looking forward, snow day's not a thing. <laughs> she says they haven't broken it to the kids yet. But no, it hasn't been perfect, but how could it be? Joining us right now is the general manager of Budweiser Gardens, Brian Ohl, to talk more about the past year. Brian, how are you? Um, I'm doing well, Mike, and how are you doing? Not bad. I bet a year ago if we'd given you a pen and a paper and said, create a scenario that you think we'll, we'll never see, this one probably wouldn't have dawned on you, would it? No, I think uh, when when things first happened, we all thought, okay, well, this this will happen, this will you know, disrupt things for a few months. I mean, you know, the, the, the OHL thought they were they're just going a little hiatus for a bit. Uh, same thing with all the professional league, you know, professional basketball and hockey. And our concerts and stuff, we thought, okay, well, we'll just put everything into the summer, you know. But uh, we, we certainly uh, got, uh, got fooled on that one. Well, the fact that we are talking right now is a good thing. And as difficult as this past year has been, you are part of a larger community in Spectacor where you must have meetings and, and talk with other venues. What sorts of things come up? What do, you, what do you talk about in those meetings right now? Well, we talk, you know, we're in our comp- company, uh, Spectre Venue Management, we're managing uh, venues through all throughout North America and uh, actually in the world. But, uh, the North American venues are, are talking uh, quite often, and we're you know comparing notes to you know like some places. I mean, if you saw the see the news, Texas is saying, okay, we're opening up for business, um, you know, and so every state in the in the U.S. and and the provinces up here are all uh, have different uh, mandates and things. Uh, I, I would say Canada is probably more consistent across uh, from coast to coast than. Uh, than it is down 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 below south of the border. Yeah, it depends which state you're in on yep. which day, and a lot of those states will have at least a, a few fans coming in, or like you say, Texas for one has said we're open, we're ready to go. When you look at at kind of how that is playing out, how closely will you pay attention to the things that they're doing for when you may have the opportunity to do the same thing in inviting people back? Oh, we're we're paying attention to all the venues, to industry, medical experts, and everything, and we're we're working towards a uh, a certification to to reopen that's uh, done. Uh, you know, the NBA, NHL are doing the same sort of certifications. I know in Toronto they're 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 doing this. So we're we're working toward that goal, not knowing exactly what the parameters are going to be when we do get to open up again. But uh, there are some things that are just. Uh, I think accepted in the in the in the you know, scientific community of what what needs to happen. So we're we're kind of going with 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 some of that stuff. So in terms of of you know what sorts of things might be needed for guests of venues, has that discussion taken place yet? In terms of you know we hear vaccine passport or things like proof of having a vaccine. Is that something that has been discussed yet? Oh sure, that's uh, you know everything's on the table in 
and and really it's going to be the 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 government and the and the, the medical community is going to tell us what the parameters are but in the meantime you you, you don't want to get caught uh unaware so you know we're we've we've talked to folks about uh you know different things like like uh vaccine passports and things like that um doesn't mean that's what we're going to be going with but it's, we still have to be knowledgeable about these these different things uh so that when the time comes we and we're given some instructions from the, the medical community we can uh, um we can act quickly absolutely brian all joining us general manager of Budweiser Gardens. Brian, when you do look back over this past year, what is going to stand out to you when we hopefully hit those better times? Well, I, th- I think, you know, on a, on a personal level, I, I look at uh, the staff that, uh, that that we have at the Budweiser Gardens and the creativity and, and uh, perseverance of, of just doing things and being involved in the community. Um, you know some of the some of the things. You know we've done some fundraising for uh, you know different organizations, and we've done uh, uh, you know we we did a you know we turned a parking lot into a, a patio last year uh, with live music, and and that was well very well received by the community, and that's really what it is. I, I look back and see that uh, um, been real touched by the 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 support the community has had for the for the venue and and what what we've uh, attempted to do you know throughout this past year we are talking right now with brian old general manager with budweiser gardens you think of of all the acts that come through london and all the acts that have come through london it's it's been amazing to watch does this leave you dreaming of of some of those things and thinking yeah you know what we'll we'll see sir elton john again or we'll see who knows you know shania twain again i know those particular acts when they've come through a lot of people in london it took some adjustment it took some getting used to to think yeah those people are playing here yeah i i um you know i'm a positive guy i think uh, we'll get back to uh um you know to what you know, maybe it's a new normal, but we'll get back to having those those shows. I think what we may see on the concert side, um, maybe uh, at first it might just be uh, Canadian artists coming through, you know, things like, you know, like a Brian Adams and stuff like that um, until, uh, you know, the travel between the States and Canada, you know, gets straightened out. And then uh, I think uh, we'll, we'll be open for business and getting those, you know, those, uh, those big artists coming back through again and uh, spending some time in London. Well, Brian, it's always great checking in with you. Keep that optimism that you have. Anything you want to leave us with? Anything that you think we need to know before we go? Well, you know, it's it's, it's funny. I've been I've been reading the paper a lot. I haven't had any conversation with the league, but uh, you know, seeing that the OHL and uh, you know the province seems you know positive that something's going to happen, and so we're. We're anxiously awaiting to see what uh, what's going on with the OHL, and hopefully the Knights can get on the ice soon. Well, let's hope so. Brian, you keep safe. Have a great weekend, and thanks for catching up with us. Okay, thanks, Mike. You have a good weekend. That is Brian Ole, general manager of Budweiser Gardens, and it's it's been a tough year, but as he says, you know, the staff has still found ways to do things. It's not hosting shows. It's not hosting events. You think about how many nights the lights are on. That's that's always it. You, you don't want to see a venue 
that goes dark at night on a regular basis. And uh, it's it doesn't happen very often for Budweiser Gardens when you think of the nights and the lightning and Disney on Ice and all of the concerts and other shows that come through, monster trucks that come through. I mean, soon we're, we'll see that dirt being brought in, the 50 truckloads of dirt that wind up coming through. Might even be more than 50 truckloads that turn an arena floor into a place where monster trucks race around and jump and crush stuff. And, and you know, I, I don't know if you've heard this story before. I've told it once before, but we were on the road in the playoffs with the London Knights. And this is a number of years ago. It might have been even, I don't know, it was a series in Erie. I remember that. So we were coming back from Erie, and we get back, and the monster trucks have gone, and the Knights play in a day and a half, essentially. By the time we got back from Erie, it was about 3.30 in the morning, and a couple of the players had taken a peek out at the ice surface with all the dirt and the trucks that are just lying there, and somebody came back and said, they hit the boards. And so more people went out just to have a look. And sure enough, one of the trucks had not just hit the boards. Over by the benches, there was a 90-degree turn in the boards. It, it was wild. It was a huge dent that they had made. And the Knights played in, again, a day and a half. They came back there just shy of a day and a half. All of the dirt was gone. All of the vehicles were gone. There was no sign that the vehicles had even been there. And the boards were pristine and perfect. So the crew that works at Budweiser Gardens, we tell this on night's broadcast quite often, especially when on the road, you could have a stopwatch going. And if something goes wrong in any building, it seems, that isn't Budweiser Gardens, takes forever to get it fixed sometimes. I've seen an ice resurfacing machine sit on the ice for 40 minutes, just shy of getting off the ice. But there it was sitting there, or panes of glass. Things get fixed like that. This is a really well-run building, and it'll be great to see it get back going and back running as we're used to it in the near future, let's hope. So, as Brian says, just like with the Ontario Hockey League, everything is still on the table. And in terms of what people are going to need, do you need a vaccine passport? We don't know. We don't. It's, it's almost like yesterday Dr. Mackey was asked if the OHL gives the green light to go. It kind of falls on the public health side of things to give the real go-ahead and say, yes, in this area we can get underway again. And Dr. Mackey had answered the question that was asked with, well, we haven't – really seen the protocol, so it's difficult to weigh in to say, sure. So he wasn't able to do that yesterday, but those may be coming in the next week or two. And again, with the spread of vaccinations, and here's hoping numbers either staying low or dropping, because that's, that's what our last year has come down to, right? Case counts, numbers, and rates of transmission. If we go back to June, the COVID-19 brain study began looking to recruit all kinds of people who had received a confirmed positive diagnosis of COVID-19. 
and it aimed to look at direct and indirect effects on the brain. It was a collaboration between Western University, the University of Toronto, and Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. And Dr. Adrian Owen, who is a cognitive neuroscience and imaging professor at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western, was someone who was leading the way in in finding out about some of these long-term effects of COVID-19. And here we are, months later, and we are still in the midst of this pandemic, but what has that study progressed toward? Let's find that out right now, because we're lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Adrian Owen. Dr. Owen, thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks very much for having me on. Let's talk about the origins of this study. Take us back to what you wanted to do. We outlined a couple of things, but what were you hoping to find out at that point? Well, you know, right at the start of the pandemic, many people said to me, this is, this is something you should be looking at. You're a cognitive neuroscientist. You're interested in, in, in things like memory and concentration and the, and the brain. Surely this virus is going to have some effects. You should start looking at it. And I, I was very resistant. You know, I said, no, I think science needs to concentrate on, on vaccines and on working out you know, how this virus is being you know, transmitted between people and these sorts of things. But you know, as things moved on, as we got into the sort of second and third month of the pandemic, people were starting to report things like, brain fog. Uh, They were starting to use terms like long haulers and long COVID. And it was becoming more and more apparent that, you know, many people that were recovering from the effects of COVID-19 infection were actually having problems with their brain. And that is problems with thinking straight, uh, you know, their memory, uh, trying to concentrate on, on, on everyday activities. And it was really at that point that I thought, okay, we need to get involved here because this is escalating very quickly. Uh, and it's obviously going to affect a lot of people. And if this is a real problem, we need to get on top of it as quickly as we possibly can. It would sound strange, and I think it did to most of us, that you had something that at first appeared to be affecting the lungs. It was a respiratory illness that we kept hearing about at first. And then all of a sudden, to have any kind of cognitive impairment, you would think, well, wait a minute, this this can't be connected have have you ever seen a virus have a connection like this before where you can have cognitive effects? I mean, absolutely. It has happened before. And that was one of the signals for us that it was likely to happen again. I mean, in the, in the original SARS, academ- uh, SARS epidemic, many of those, uh, many people who recovered did go on to report long-term brain and neurological problems. I mean, you raise a very interesting point, and this is one that puts me very often. Well, you know, this is a respiratory illness, but you have to remember that anything that affects the flow of oxygen to the brain is likely to affect brain function. And the analogy I often use is that, you know, outside of pandemic times, I see a lot of patients with very serious brain damage, and often it's caused by something like a heart attack. No, most people will say, well, that's to do with your heart. That's nothing to do with your brain. But, you know, if you have a heart attack, you'll you'll interrupt the flow of blood to the brain and blood is carrying the oxygen that your brain needs to survive. Hence, you can end up with brain damage from a heart attack. And and, and COVID-19 is no different. It's a respiratory infection. It seriously affects the, the flow of oxygen to any organ in the body. But also to the to the brain and this can have indirect effects uh, on the brain itself 
We are talking right now with Dr. Adrian Owen, cognitive neuroscientist and imaging professor at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry, looking at a study that began back in June. So the goal was to get as many people as you could, thousands if you could. Has the uh, has the, the number hit the thousands yet in terms of how many people you've been able to make contact with? It has, yeah. I mean, uh, we're actually about to publish the first findings from the study. Uh, and there are about 8,000 people th- in that paper. Now, not, not all of them had COVID. And, and actually, it became apparent as time went on that we had to be very careful uh, about being absolutely sure who had and who didn't have. So we had about 3,000 people who, who thought they'd had COVID. But of course, you know, back in June of last year, most people weren't getting tested. So we can't be absolutely sure. And we're really, really concerned here about about being very, making sure that any findings we have are really specifically related to a positive diagnosis. So when we only include those people who were tested back then and have done everything that's required for the study, we have about 500 people right now who we're following for an entire year. We're about to publish the, 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 the first findings from that initial cohort of, of participants. And when you talk about following them for a year, Dr. Owen, what does that entail? Well, you know, the most important thing for me is, you know, I mean, it's pretty clear that you know, people are uh, describing brain fog. Many people are, are saying they have cognitive impairments. They can't think the way they used to think. I, I, I don't think it's going to be very surprising for people when we publish our data saying, you know, it's true that that is what's happening. The big question is, how long does it go on for? Is this something, you know, and there are are basically three possibilities. It could be that, you know, over the next couple of months, you get better after you've recovered from from COVID infection. It could be that uh, you never get better. These deficits that you have now, these problems are going to continue forever. Or worst case scenario, they could get worse, like, like some kind of dimension i don't i don't want to frighten people these are just the the scientific possibilities that we have to try and investigate but of course the only way we can know whether that's true is to follow people over a a reasonably long period of time so we're following people for a year and that means that at various intervals initially after they've been infected uh, about three months and then at a year's time they'll log into our website at covidbrainstudy.com and do some cognitive tests some tests of memory concentration decision making problem solving uh, and we'll we'll follow them because we'll have this what we vote as longitudinal data that uh, they'll, they'll, they'll have been tested over a series of intervals in a year's time we'll be able to answer that question are people getting worse are they staying the same or hopefully they're getting better we are talking right now with dr adrian owen canada excellence research chair in cognitive neuroscience and imaging at the brain and mind institute at western university dr owen when you look at at the first thing that you publish in a study typically what does it do what what will we be looking for when that is published well i think the most important thing is we're going to really unveil what brain fog is and i think that's really important because you know there there are a lot of words you know being banded around to describe this phenomenon and brain fog is, is a very popular one right now but you know in neuroscientific terms it really doesn't mean very much we know that it means that people think think that they have a problem with their mental 
abilities, with their thinking, if you like. But we don't know. Is, is it a memory problem? Is it a problem with attention? Uh, and and, and uh, is it a problem with decision making? And these are all real brain processes that we understand and we can investigate. And the reason why it's important is because then we can advise people about what they should and shouldn't do. I mean, if this is if this is if this is a serious problem with maintaining attention, for example, maybe that's likely to have an effect on driving. And we might think that people should be wary about driving. Uh, you know, if it's a big, if it's a memory problem, then obviously there are there are some activities that, you know, people will want to be wary of if, if, if it's their memory that's affected. So I think the, the big initial news will be around um, what exactly is brain fog? Uh, what is it that I, I, I sh shouldn't worry about at all? What am I going to be fine at? And where are the areas of cognition that I, I, I'm likely to run into problems with? Certainly. Dr. Owen, one last question, and that deals with an age range in all of this, because from the outset, it has kind of been described, COVID-19 has been described as something that is more damaging for individuals who might be a little bit older as opposed to individuals who are younger. Are you following people who are, are young in this study? Uh, uh, yeah, we are. And uh, in fact, there's a very, you've opened a very interesting uh, can of worms there in the sense that um, we've looked at people at different ages uh, and we do know that the, the impairments, the cognitive impairments that people are seeing are linked to the severity of their, their covid 19 response so it's not going to be surprising then that older people are going to be more severely affected because of course they tend to be more affected by the disease process itself however i think what's going to be surprising is where we're seeing issues of mental health things like depression and anxiety and that's actually occurring more in younger people than in older people uh, and i think that's very interesting that it's it's possibly affecting people the infection is affecting people at different in different age groups in different ways either physically and cognitively or it's affecting younger people's mental health and i mean i should say that um nobody is immune we're seeing impairments even in people who've had relatively mild physical symptoms people who are, have been largely asymptomatic are are experiencing at least in the short term uh, cognitive impairments there's, there's a lot in here to unpack but uh, you know it's a complicated story but i i hope we can shed a lot of light on all of these questions well you've made it very simple for us to follow right now dr owen when do we look for the first published work out of this study uh, so this will be coming out you know, hopefully in the, in the next few weeks. We have the, the the scientific paper is written. We're just putting the final touches on it, and we'll submit it hopefully in the next day or two. And I I would think within a few weeks uh, we'll be able to make all of the results public, and uh, I'm sure people will hear about them. Dr. Owen, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for your work on this because it will open a lot of understanding about a disease that when we first encountered it. We didn't understand it all. So thank you, and please keep safe. My, my pleasure. Thanks very much. That's Dr. Adrian Owen, Canada Excellence Research Chair in Cognitive Neuroscience and Imaging at the Brain and Mind Institute at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western University. So, yeah, that brain fog, it is a thing, and they will outline what that is in this study, and then it becomes, okay, what is causing it? And it's really interesting to think of when – when we consider brain fog, you would think, yeah, yeah, I just, just feeling a little foggy today. We all have days like that. But to think that 
the cause of it comes from blood flow perhaps in the body that's one of the things that they are looking at as they talk with individuals they of course won't be able to do comparative testing for some time now so this study is going to go on for a long time and there will be more and more research to come but it's one that started here and may tell us some very interesting things going forward for anyone who is affected in that way bottom line becomes what you don't want COVID-19 You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.